Hey listeners, this is Ben, the Amateur Exegete, and you're listening to Episode 2 of Bible Study for Amateurs. Today's episode is The Greatest Story Never Told. The Bible is a book, or is it? As I explained last week, over the next few episodes of Bible Study for Amateurs, we will be looking at seven ways in which the Bible is problematic or complicated, per Kristen Swenson in her volume, A Most Peculiar Book, The Inherent Strangeness of the Bible. The first such problem Swenson recognizes is this. The Bible is not a single book. Now, it's of course true that if you own a Bible, it's probably a book, a text between two covers, but your premium thin-line goatskin leather English standard version that you paid $200 for, wait, that that can't be right. $200 for a Bible? Good golly, Miss Molly. In any event, that really overpriced Bible that you've got sitting on your shelf belies the nature of its contents. To quote historian Paula Fredrickson, the Bible is not a book, it's a library. Libraries not only contain books of different genres, song lyrics, mythologies, histories, and so on, but there's nothing that requires all of the books to agree on every point. The same is true of the Bible. Let me give you an example of this. Did Jesus forbid divorce? Well, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, then you'd be forced to conclude that he did. Whatever God has joined together, the Mark and Jesus tells the Pharisees in Mark chapter 10, verse 9, let no one separate. But Matthew's Jesus isn't so black and white on the issue. I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. So, Mark's Jesus forbids divorce, while Matthew's Jesus forbids it except in the case of unchastity, a word that renders the Greek noun porneia. Here's another, again from the Gospels. Why did Jesus grow up in Nazareth, even though he was born in Bethlehem? According to Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, it's because Jesus' dad was too afraid to return to Judea, where a new Herod was ruling, and so after returning from Egypt, where they had fled to escape Herod the Great, he chose to settle his family in Galilee instead. But in Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 40, Jesus goes to Nazareth because that is where Joseph and Mary are originally from, and they return there from Jerusalem not Egypt, about 40 days after Jesus' birth. Now, there's no shortage of explanations from the keyboards of apologists explaining these contradictions away, but more often than not, they involve either ignoring the text or creating their own third account that mangles the other two. We can ignore them. Contradictions in these texts aren't accidental. They're intentional. They reflect the underlying beliefs of the authors about what Jesus said and did. 
but that also means that we don't have this neat, coherent narrative about Jesus either. There are hiccups that need to be taken seriously. These hiccups appear even within single books. Joel Baden mentions a few problematic doublets that appear in Genesis in his book, The Composition of the Pentateuch. In Genesis chapter 28, verse 19, the city of Luz is renamed Bethel, while Jacob is on his way to Paddan Aram. Then, in Genesis chapter 35, verse 15, the city of Luz is renamed Bethel, while Jacob is on his way from Paddan Aram. According to Genesis chapter 21, verse 31, Beersheba is so named because it is where Abimelech and Abraham swore an oath to one another. According to Genesis chapter 26, verse 33, Beersheba is so named because it is where Abimelech and Isaac swore an oath to one another. Jacob becomes Israel in Genesis chapter 32, verse 29, after his encounter with some kind of divine being. A few chapters later, in Genesis chapter 35, verse 10, Jacob becomes Israel while he's at Bethel. After enumerating these hiccups, Baden concludes, These doublets are mutually exclusive. In each case, the naming or renaming is recounted as if it is happening for the first and only time. Again and again and again we find narrative hiccups that show the Bible isn't a single book with a neat plot and coherent narrative that runs from Genesis to Revelation. There are real problems. Back to Swenson's point. She writes that just because people refer to the Bible as the greatest story ever told doesn't mean that it is. There is no neat progression all the way through from beginning to end, she writes. And this is key to understanding the biblical texts. They're multivocal. When we try to take a theological framework and apply it to all of the Bible, we run into problems. It just doesn't work. So how should we respond to these hiccups? What should we do with the fact that the Bible isn't a single book? Well, we should just roll with it. Let it be what it is. I think the best way to respect the text is to not force it to be something that it isn't. That's all the time we've got for this week. We'll see you next time. And remember, in the words of Richard Elliott Friedman, one does not need to deny what is troubling about the Bible in order to pay respect to what is heartening. See ya.